Well, good morning. I know you were welcomed by Jan and by Randy, um, but I would like to welcome you as well. Um, although I think I can safely speak for a few of you in here that if you are a Texas A&M fan, you can just get the heck out of here right now, okay? Um, no, it's a, a rough weekend for football. Randy and I were talking that Pitt lost, Penn State lost, Auburn lost, Alabama lost, West Virginia lost, Miami, Ohio lost. Um, if the Steelers lose tomorrow night, I will, uh, that's it. Um, but my introduction to SEC football actually was when I was in college in Pennsylvania, there was one kid on my hall that was an LSU fan. And if they lost on Saturday, he would wear an LSU hoodie with the hood up over his head for two days walking around campus speaking to no one. Okay, I thought that was kind of weird. And then I moved to Alabama, and I kind of get it now, okay? So for those of you who are just kind of in a state of mourning, I hope you can laugh a little bit this morning. And uh, we are going to look at the Word of God, and that's always a great thing. So um, if you would, uh, flip open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Uh, we're going to look at verses 42 to 52. Would you stand as you do that? We'll read it together. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to your word. Lord, that, that this would be a time of um, encouragement, a time of joy as we look into the things that you have to say to us this morning. God bless our time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts thirteen forty two to 52. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, and you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the, re the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and, were, and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. So as we look at the book, we're going to continue in the book of Acts this morning. Uh, several weeks ago I preached about... Um, a little bit earlier in Acts chapter 13, where Paul and Barnabas had been sent off by the church at Antioch. Um, and here we actually find them as they arrive at a different Antioch. They're at a Pisidian Antioch. They had gone on. Uh, the church at uh, Antioch had sent them to, uh, to Cyprus. Uh, and when they had, they had met uh, Sergius Paulus, a proconsul, they had been opposed by um, a magician there named Bar-Jesus. And so uh, they had 
they had left there. Uh, they, they preached the word to Sergius Paulus, um, who became a believer, and then they had left and they traveled, and they continued traveling and preaching throughout uh, the Roman Empire. So this uh, Pisidian Antioch is the same. It's, it's the same name, but it's different than Antioch. There's no church here. Uh, they come here, and there's just a synagogue. And so the, there were Jews that were there that, that had established a synagogue in uh, Pisidian Antioch, but there's no believers Paul and Barnabas, as they, as they arrive and as they do in every, place, every town that they go to, they first go to the synagogue and they're invited as visiting rabbis uh, to preach, uh, to, to share a word from the Lord uh, to the local synagogue. You know, so Paul seizes this opportunity and he preaches the gospel and he gives this great sermon declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. He proves it uh, through texts from the Old Testament. He looks at prophecies. Um, this is all earlier in chapter 13, so if you have time uh, sometime today or this week, go ahead and read that because it's an excellent um, example of a sermon of Paul. And as a result of this, we see that as a result of the good news being faithfully proclaimed, um, that some come to faith, some, both Jews and Gentiles are drawn to Paul and Barnabas, and the people cannot wait until the next Sabbath when they can hear from them again. Okay. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not very often that I'm actually looking forward to the next Sabbath. You know? they, but they actually are, as they're walking out of the synagogue, they cannot wait for the opportunity to come back and hear the word of the Lord. You know, this is so new and it's fresh and it's exciting that as they hear the message of Jesus, they can't wait to come and hear it again. And this is exactly what happens. Um, the gospel is spreading. And the next Sabbath, when they come back, again, this, this town was not a Jewish town. And so the, the synagogue is full of Gentiles. You know, people, the gospel quickly spreads throughout the town. It says the whole city shows up to hear the message of Paul and Barnabas. There had never been so many people in this synagogue before. And instead of being excited, the Jews, of course, they get jealous. Um, you know, like Paul and Barnabas, like the early church, the Jews would also send out missionaries uh, to go to different areas. But the gospel that they preached was not the gospel of Jesus, of course, um, but it was the gospel of the Pharisees, which was a gospel of works righteousness. So they would come to an area, and if you were, as they established a synagogue, if you wanted to join the, the synagogue, if you wanted to become a Jew, there was all these rules that you would have to follow. You know, adult men would have to be circumcised. Um, they would have to follow the ceremonial law, the Mosaic law, all these different things. You know, they, the people would be required to, to come and do that, but that was not God's original design for evangelism. The Jews had twisted the gospel message, so much so that in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The Jews weren't really interested in sharing their faith as much as they were interested in uh, making these converts to this works righteousness religion. You know, when you preach a gospel of works and you point to yourself as the ultimate example of that, there are not going to be very many converts. This is kind of like Jonah, where, where in the book of Jonah, God sends Jonah to the Ninevites. And he tells him to go and to preach repentance. And at first, of course, Jonah runs away. He gets... Uh, eaten by the 
the big fish, the whale. God allows the big fish to spit him back out. He sends Jonah back to go to preach to Nineveh, and he does so begrudgingly. And we see that the, the whole city responds that the people actually choose to repent. And is Jonah excited? He's, he's angry. He's jealous. Uh, he's mad. Which makes no sense to us, right? If you're a teacher and your students listen to everything you say, okay, this is a big if, and they do all their homework, and they take their exam, and they all make A's, you're going to be excited and happy that they listened to what you said. Instead, what Jonah does is he becomes angry, and, and uh, he, he's just terribly mad that these people who were not Jewish, that they could somehow receive the grace of God. You know, Jonah thought and believed that they deserved the wrath of God, and yet God is coming and telling him, no, if they repent, they can believe. So that was the gospel of the Pharisees, uh, that they had gone to, to preach, but they didn't really want to make converts. And so they would go and they would establish these synagogues. Um, they would get followers to their uh, corrupted gospel. And here comes Paul and Barnabas. You know, the difference between their message and the message of the Jews could not have been more clear. You know, the Jews taught reconciliation with God based on works. You know, it's all about what I do. Paul and Barnabas taught salvation based on the grace of God and faith in Jesus alone. You know, Paul and Barnabas, though, they do begin their preaching just like they did everywhere in the synagogue. You know, the God had given the Jews kind of the right of first refusal, where they were the ones to always first receive the message of Jesus. And when we think about it, it kind of makes sense. It would seem as if they would be the first ones to believe. They had the Old Testament. They had the prophecies. They had everything um, that God had, had chosen them. To, they, they were preservers of the faith. And that when the true gospel was preached to them, they rejected it. You know, they were so close to faith, but they never quite got there. You know, Paul and Barnabas begin by speaking, by preaching to those that are closest to them. They go and they speak to their family. Um, these were both Jews, so they went and talked to the Jews. The same is true today for us as when we become Christians and believers, we begin by speaking to those that are closest to us. You know, we go around, we, we spread the gospel to our friends and our family, our neighbors, our coworkers. These are the people that we really love and care about, and we want them to know that God loves them. That's, that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas are doing here. So they start in the synagogue, but as the message gets out, it's overrun with Gentiles. The crowds increase, the Jews are filled with jealousy, you know, they're angry that the, that the Lord's missionaries um, are becoming more popular than they are. And they begin even to stir up persecution among them. It says that they, um, they, that they went and they spoke to, incited the devout women of high standing. Okay, these were women that you would not want to mess with. You know, the high society types. The, women, the devout women of high standing, the leading men of the city, they went up and they stirred persecution among them so that soon Paul and Barnabas were getting kicked out of Pisidian Antioch. And as they do, though, it's interesting because they shake, they shake the dust off their sandals as they're leaving the town. Uh, Jews at Ephesus, they went to different areas. If they, would, if they were to leave Israel, when they returned, they were to shake the dust off their feet. Uh, uh, sorry, off of their feet, not floor. Uh, they would shake the dust off of their feet as a sign of kind of a cleansing that they had now come back into the Jewish land. Uh, sorry, in Luke... Earlier in Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 72, Jesus told the seven, 
sorry, he commanded the 72 that whenever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. They're following the words of Christ. That as they, as they are leaving, this is a symbol, a sign, that the Jews are now the unbelievers. Okay, there's this transformation that is taking place here just by simply shaking the dust off of their sandals as they leave. It's a symbol that they had rejected God and they had rejected the Lord's messengers. In verse 46, it said that they had found themselves unworthy of eternal life. So the Jews were now the unbelievers. The gospel was to go to the Gentiles. But, but Paul, unlike Jonah, Paul finds no joy in this. He's not celebrating the fact that the Jews are rejecting Jesus. Um, if you flip over to Romans chapter 9 for a moment. Romans 9 verse 3. You can kind of keep your finger in Acts 13. You know, Paul would later write, he said, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. There's no animosity here that these people had rejected Christ. Instead, there's this sorrow and this anguish where he wishes that he himself, if it were possible, would go to hell to save his fellow Jews. He has such deep sorrow and care and love for these people that as they reject Christ, he's not celebrating, but rather mourning the fact that they would be the ones that were on the outside looking in. So the missionaries preach, the Jews reject and react, and then we see the Gentiles come to faith. So if you flip back over to Acts um, chapter 13, we're going to spend our next bit of time just looking at this, verse 48. And this is when Luke switches. He, He goes from recording what happens to kind of how it happens. So he's recording history here, but he also adds in a little bit of theology and doctrine. And doctrine is just a a big word of saying this is kind of the, the foundations of our faith. So verse 48 says, And when the Jews heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. Okay, as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. Now this is a massive doctrine of Christianity, and this is called the doctrine of election. That This doctrine states that, that God chooses us. Okay, it states that God chooses us, that we in our sinful selves do not choose God, but rather that God chooses us. As many as were appointed to believe, and to be appointed means to be chosen. The Gentiles now were chosen by God to believe. So again, God chooses us to come to faith. We already read this morning in Romans chapter 8 that that God had predestined and foreknew and called those to come to faith. If we can, we'll flip over to John chapter 6, verse 65. So Paul says this, um, and we know that Luke says this, and now in John chapter 6, we see that Jesus says this. John 6, 65. And he, Jesus, said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Yeah, no one, Jesus says no one can come to me unless it has been granted by the Father. 
Faith is not something where we choose God, but rather it's something that God chooses us. Okay, so briefly we're going to just examine this doctrine for just a few minutes and, and, and look at kind of what is doctrine. You know, how does it happen and then what, how should it affect my life? Um, so the first thing to know is that God choosing us is the ultimate act of grace. It's actually an act of grace. It's an act of grace because if God does not choose us, we cannot choose God. You know, it's not as if we just had some more time and we would figure it out. But Jesus makes no sense to sinful man. He makes no sense to our sinful selves. You know, on my own, I don't want anything to do with Christ. I don't want him in my life. My disobedience to the law, the prophets, um, to, the, to my own uh, conscience, to the moral law of God is a sign that, God has, that, that I have rejected God with my life. You know, my sin is a marker that I'm in, actually in rebellion against God. I've chosen death over life. And it's not just myself, obviously, but it's all of us. That in verse 46, again, they said that since you thrust it aside, you judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Say, Behold, we are turned to the Gentiles. You know, as, the rejection, as they reject Jesus, they are literally saying, I am unworthy. You know, but in their unbelief, in their opposition to the gospel, that's what they're saying. They rejected the gospel, and they prove their unworthiness to it by rejecting it. You know, instead of resting in the power and resurrection of Jesus as a basis of standing before God, the Jews have ultimately chosen their own acts and righteousness. That's how they want to be judged. And God does judge that, and the result is that they are unworthy. You know, they had bought into the lie that they were capable of and indeed had already earned favor with God. That they were good enough but they also taught that no one else could be good enough, that, that no one else could meet this impossible standard. You know, when the, when the gospel is presented as something that's for everyone, they can't wrap their minds around the fact of unmerited favor. It's kind of an ironic twist, but it's not really irony, in that the Jews had been teaching to everyone else that they weren't good enough. And when the, when the Gentiles hear the message from Paul and Barnabas, that, that grace comes through faith alone, they already understand because they know they can't measure up to, to God's law. You know, if God does not choose us, then no one will ever believe. You know, we're all alike and that we all deserve death and hell and damnation. But the fact that any would believe, that's a demonstration of the grace of God. And so that's what election is. Firstly, it's a demonstration of the, elect, of the grace of God. And secondly, to have a proper view of election, we have to have a good understanding of the sovereignty of God. You know, sovereignty is a, is a big word that essentially just says that God is right all the time. That God is always right. You know, this idea of election starts with these two ideas, that God is always right and that God is always good. You know, God is always right and God is always good. It's, it's really hard, though, sometimes to look at situations as they happen in our lives you know, it's, it's hard to see how accidents and, um, you know, natural disasters and, um, you know, sickness and death, how through all those things, how God can be right and God can be good. You know, and a lot of times we get really upset with other people, especially other Christians, as, you know, in our moment of mourning, they come up and say, oh, you know, God's got a plan for that. And sometimes doesn't that just get really, it doesn't, doesn't feel right. But the truth is that regardless of what you and I believe, God is always right, and God is always good. Our view is narrow, and our frame of mind is very limited and shallow. 
You know, we can't see what God sees. We don't know what God knows. And we make terrible judges. Okay, that's, that's why we had to invent the BCS. You know, it was because human beings can't judge anything very well. You know, we have to have computers to judge our football teams for us. Um, in the same way, we're terrible at judging whether something is right or good. So oftentimes we will look at something that God does and say, that's not right or that's not good. And in fact, it is both. It doesn't really matter what you or I say. It matters the fact that God is right and God is good. That's his nature. He can't go against that. You know, Romans 9, 20 tells us, uh, 20, 23 tells us, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And so God is the ultimate judge. His judgments are perfect. They may not make sense to you or I, but the honest fact is that they don't really have to. You know, God doesn't have to ask our permission as he does things. Which, which brings us to election, where oftentimes we can look at this and say that that's not right or that's not fair. We, we, we act as if, you know, some people never have the opportunity to reject or accept Jesus. You know, the reality is that we've all rejected him. You know, the reality is that, that we have had the opportunity and everyone has chosen rejection. And the fact that any are saved is the grace of God. Which brings us to our final point. So that is, if salvation is entirely an act of God alone, of grace, if God chooses us, and if God has the authority to choose those he wants to come to faith, you know, how should I respond? You know, here's another question. What is the point, then, of evangelism? If God will act as he pleases, if God has chosen some and not chosen others, why should I even share my faith? Before we look at anything else, look back to Acts. And what do Paul and Barnabas do? As they're kicked out of yet another town, they don't go back home. They keep going. They understand the fact that God has chosen some to believe in him and they have their mandate from Christ to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Knowing and understanding the sovereignty of God gives them reassurance that as they go preach that some will come to faith. This is a comfort to them. It is not a, um, it's not a burden to them. The doctrine of election doesn't really work when we talk about evangelism. Okay, and what I mean by that is there's no excuse in election to not evangelize. It's not something that keeps us from evangelizing, but it should be something that makes us go. Okay, it doesn't allow us to be silent, but it compels us to speak. And we know that as we speak, that God will be at work, and we know that God has chosen some, and that as we preach the word of God faithfully, that people will respond. He promises that to us. That's what election is all about. You know, there's a lot of, um, probably rightfully so, there's a lot of uh, kind of cliches and in, in, in words that are said about um, Christians, especially uh, Reformed believers and, and Presbyterians, you know, the frozen chosen, the holy huddle, the, I don't even know, there's a, a bunch of them, right? Where, where we look at this doctrine and we believe that in God's sovereignty, and so as a result, we don't do anything. 
That, that's one of the complaints is that we lack joy, that we lack um, evangelism, that we don't go and that we don't share the message of Jesus. You know, the doctrine of election is not to blame for that. That's good doctrine. The, the, the people to blame for that is us. You know, it's poor practice of good theology, um, really. That, that we can know that as God seals and God preserves and God has a remnant, that God will go before us and that God has already appointed some to believe. If we don't go, that's not on God, that's on us. It's, it's, it's frustrating sometimes, although, you know, a lot of us, we kind of fit that description. And I'm not talking about just Presbyterians, but a lot of Baptists and Methodists and, and everybody, it's hard to share our faith. You know, there's people in this room, it's, it's really difficult um, sometimes. But the great comfort is knowing that God is sovereign and that he chooses whom he chooses. You know, we are to act as if God has chosen everyone. That's how we're to preach. That's how we're to share our faith with our friends, with our family. You know, we're not to be deterred when some, some deny him. Um, probably think of your own life and how many times you had to hear the gospel before you came to faith. You know, some of us, hundreds, thousands thousands of times that we heard about Jesus before finally God did something in our life and we understood and we came to faith and he changed us forever. That's, that's what election means, that God has appointed us, that God has chosen some, and when God has chosen some, he sends those chosen to everyone else. So this morning, I just want you to know that we're, that we're called to know to believe in the sovereignty of God, but we're also called to go. You know, we're, we're called to take this message. This isn't something that we can uh, sit back on. We can't use our theology or our doctrine as an excuse to be silent. You know, election also does not mean that I've earned my salvation. You know, it means that salvation is God's to give. You know, election understands that God is sovereign. You know, and, and, and by believing in election, we should be encouraged that God will do what God will do. I flip finally to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Paul writes here, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are commissioned by you to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Lord, to share this message at every opportunity so that all that you have appointed to eternal life will believe. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the assurance that you are God, that you are the judge. Lord, that you are right and that you are good. Jesus, you have given us, your people, the responsibility to share our faith. Strengthen and embolden us for this task. Humble us as we serve you so that you would receive the glory for the work that you are doing. 
And Father, we thank you for the ultimate act of grace in offering forgiveness of sin and an opportunity to walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.